This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Maximum Speed, Pushing the Limit, and the author, Joanna Lee Doster. And Joanna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joanna. Hi, Steve. How are you? I guess we have to have one of those uh, roll of the drums or, or something, gentlemen, start your engines or something like that. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, yes, I did have to change it to driver, start your engines. <laughs> driver, start your engines, yes. Yes. It's, it's a lady driving, anyway. She's right. A, and she's a tough lady. We'll talk about her in a minute, but I want to read what you've written just to set the stage for all our listeners. You say, it's a racetrack thriller about overcoming obstacles. A multi-generation stock car racing family must band together to expose the deadly forces threatening their lives and the lives of the Devlin Motorsports racing team that are attempting to keep them out of the year's most prestigious car race. And, of course, we've got one of the top drivers, Jimmy Stanton, has been brutally kidnapped and... Sean Chase Devlin, a two-time racing champion, barely survives a suspicious bone-crushing crash on the yes. speedway. In fact, is that how the story starts with this race and the, and the crash? Well, actually, it starts with our Sean having a premonition, and he has a nightmare, and he's been having nightmares for several days uh, after he's been tasered. And he was witness to his best friend and teammate, Jimmy, being kidnapped. So he has this premonition. The book begins, and I don't want to give it away, but it's this exciting description of him dying after he's been, um, he's dying because his car crashed. And so that, he wakes up, and it's the day of an important race, the Tracks 400 race. And he um, he says, oh, my goodness, I have this terrible feeling, this foreboding that something bad is going to happen. And so then the race takes off, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, you say the sinister plot set in yes. play is a ticking time bomb. So this has a lot of intrigue, a lot of mystery, twists and turns. Yes. Forgive me. And... And a a lot of drive, as you say, right? A lot of drive. (laughs) And driving, too, very fast. Very good driving, yes. (laughs) Well, you're fascinated with heroes with flaws. Tell us about our hero with the flaw. Well, I always like challenges, and in my own life and people's lives, and I think that I love multi-textured characters and I wanted to tell an epic story of this family and how the hero overcomes a very difficult childhood and I think this is a composite of people we all know that 
lots of people overcome challenges. Some you see, some you don't, handicaps particularly. And I thought, this is a kid who's really a champion, and people can't tell just by looking at him what he's been through. And he had a childhood stutter that he had to overcome. And I'm not demonizing mothers because they are wonderful. But in his case, his mother was very perfectionistic, and she pushed him to overcome this handicap. And she taught him to drive when he was nine years old. Can you imagine? And there's a chapter in the book where this twin sister witnesses the mother dragging him downstairs to the garage when he's nine, right the night before he's nine, and they're nine. Um, and this kid is, she puts him in this car, and she teaches him how to drive, and she thinks that this will cure him permanently of any uh, of his handicaps because he'll be so enthralled with racing and, and speed. And actually, it does, it does happen. He becomes enthralled with the idea of he's he, he's a kid and he thinks he's like an action hero, but he does love um, speed and risk taking and um, yes, and um, so that's where it starts. However, he never does really lose his stutter and how he I, he tr- at the end he realizes that he's overcompensated his whole life to for speed and risk-taking, to be the best at everything, to show everybody that he is perfect. And I think that resonates in a lot of people's lives, either masking their fears or um, overcompensating in some way to overcome their their handicaps, fears. And um, that's what I, I... I love my Sean because I think he is every man. Even though he's a champion... He really does um, have bits and pieces of everybody in the, in him, and um, that's what I did. Well, you, on a side note, you have taught uh, special ed, so you understand this problem very well. Uh, let, let's kind of switch gears, and though, and talk about some of the uh, personality conflicts uh we have let's see we have dakota phillips and we have daniela lawson i mean uh tell us about them i mean here's the here's the the female racers (laughs) um dakota phillips was fun she kind of became my alter ego and um because i i never tell anybody this but i had polio as a child and i found out later in life and speaking of overcoming challenges and physical frailties, um, I found out when I was 20 that I had had polio when I was an infant. And I was always coddled as a child, and I never knew why. And so don't dive into the pool and don't. And I think, as I said, Dakota Phillips, who is this female driver, and she races with Sean. She's with the DMS, the Devlin Motorsports team, um, is fearless and even in her personal life she it's business at all costs she is totally business and and beautiful uh, yes she's gorgeous she's stunning kind of a la angelina jolie and she um winning at all costs is her motto but i also 
I think I wrote about her because I wished at times I was like her because she is fearless and she is this wonderful race driver and she's competing with the guys and she doesn't care whether she knows if she doesn't win this race she'll win the next but she really takes winning at all costs to a very dangerous level and sean is really attracted to her he loves her uh, because I think he's infatuated with her because she doesn't pay any attention to him. And he's so used to it, all the women running after him. And, yes, she intrigues him. She intrigues him. And no. till the end, she ignores him. <laughs> now, the whole family, this Devlin family, though, is trying to find Jimmy Stanton, who's been yes. kidnapped and brutally kidnapped. Brutally kidnapped. And so Ace, the father who runs um, Devlin Motorsports with the older brother, Connor, um, they are expecting, they don't know what to expect. And so they have people watching over this race because this is the first race after um, the sinister, the kidnapping of Jimmy and the tasering of Sean. And so um, they're... They are trying to be cautious because they don't know what to expect. And, yes, it's very frightening because Ace is this wonderful father who had been in special ops in the Gulf War. And so he goes on full alert, full tilt of who could be doing this to his racing team and to his family. So that's the exciting plot. And then there's a real super race. The Gator 500 is coming up in a week. And so it looks like somebody is out to keep them from racing in that big race. So you talk about karma in your book. Yes. Tell us about that. Great question. I always believe in karma. And sometimes it helps when people are in pain or have been hurt or have been um, disappointed. Um, You always hope that the hand of God or somebody will step in and smite (laughs) the bad person. And so I, my mother always taught me when I was growing up, and it's so silly, but it does resonate in me, crime doesn't pay. We'd watch these old movies, and, and the bad guy always got it. And so in some way, I wanted to mete out some justice. And I think at the end, you will see that in a way, um, people do, although some people are still hurt, um, but some people do get their just rewards a little bit. Who's suspect in the kidnap? Well, that's the thing. You don't know, and I always loved, I, I studied the genres of Agatha Christie and Hitchcock, and they always say there's a MacGuffin falsely that you think you think you know who the bad person is and you really don't know and i tried to do that and in the end you really do find out who uh, masterminded this whole thing and it's very surprising because you would think it would be a, a competitive team or um other racers who are um trying to sabotage them but then you come, come to find out that it's really in his family and that's what oh my goodness how could family members betray other family members you also are focused on 
What's in a person's character that makes them overcome adversity or a handicap? That that theme. Yes, I yes, I, and to me, those are the true heroes. Um, you meet so many people in life, and I think it was Plato who said, "Be kind to the people you meet because you don't know the tough life that they have, and it's." the burdens that they're carrying, and that's kind of true, and I, um, I've i come to learn, when I was much younger, I always was envious of other people having more fun or um, going places that I didn't go to, and I found out that you really shouldn't envy other people or covet what they have, because you really don't know what's going on with them, and so... Um, um, that's that's what I feel. That um, yeah, you never know what's going on in other people's lives. And your book is literally a metaphor for life. Of people are either racing away for something or from something, and they're, they're racing to something. Yes, and that's well put. I think it's not the destination that counts in people's lives, but it's your journey. It's your journey to your destination and how you conduct your life and how you treat other people. That, to me, is um, that really molds and makes people's characters, the journey. What closing thoughts would you like to share with us, Joanna? I think that in life, um, they're the fighters, the drivers, or the people who give up, and I think that we can never give up, that there's always hope and that you can overcome any kind of adversity if you make up your mind. And um, that's what I think, that people always have to have hope, and they always have to, and everybody has struggles, but they have to try. They have to try. Set in southern Florida, New York City, Maximum Speed provides a behind-the-scenes look at adrenaline-pumping excitement of stock car racing and the fascinating characters whose passion for winning goes beyond the racetrack. The title of the book, Maximum Speed, Pushing the Limit, and the author is Joanna Lee Doster. Joanna, tell us how to get your book. Well, I'm told you can order it uh, from iUniverse, my wonderful publisher. It's also um, Amazon.com on the um, online publishing BarnesandNobles.com, Borders.com, eBooks, and um, it's on Kindle and Nook. So um, I would say those are the main ways of ordering it. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. 
Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899, 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Discovering the Cause and the Cure for America's Healthcare Crisis, a physician's memoir. And the author is Dr. Roger Struby. And Dr. Struby joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Roger. Hello, how are you? Well, we have a major task in front of us to help us understand, especially as uh, laymen, we hear so many medical terms, we hear about Obamacare, we hear all the pros, the cons, where everybody knows we're paying a lot, and here you come along, a very experienced physician, and we're going to learn more about your background in just a moment, but you say this, the healthcare system remains in crisis, and it's hurting the overall economy. Join an insider as he examines the problem and offers solutions. So you see the problem from a doctor's point of view, and you have solutions. How did you come about to see clearly to offer solutions, especially against all that you hear in the news and you know all the things that are so confusing to most of us as laymen? Well, I started off as a physician and actually a family practitioner in private practice for about the first uh, 15 years of professional practice. And I was actually quite deeply into that uh, self-deception that I I could really uh, do things off the top of my head and solve people's problems based on my memory and how well I knew medicine. And towards the end of that practice, I got exposed to uh, the folks that were organizing some of the first managed care organizations. And they seemed to solve an awful lot of the financial problems. So towards the end of my my uh, 15 years as a practicing physician, I organized one of the first uh, practice associations that became associated with an HMO and got more deeply into managed care. And 
understood what the what the process was, or how the, it related to patients, how how it put physicians together, and it, it just made sense to solve a lot of the financial problems that were beginning to rear their ugly head at that time. And following that, I was uh, became a a, an administrative physi- uh, physician with one of the uh, very successful insurance companies in Wisconsin that was with Employers Health, and that started in 1985. And at that point, I began my education in administration and in quality improvement and in electronic support for decision-making because, obviously, insurance companies at that point uh, were very... Uh, computer literate. So my education in computers and in uh, quality improvement and in systems analysis really took off at that point. And that's when I uh, I put the two together. You know, how do you how do you practice medicine efficiently? What are the tools you need to make uh, appropriate decisions so your patients are kept as healthy as possible? How do you finance that so that it, you keep the cost as low as possible and the outcomes as good as possible for the patients. And that really sums up my career. And, of course, the book is organized as a memoir, so I take the reader of the book through the experiences I had that formed my view of the uh, medical delivery system, of the our medical industrial complex. I like to think I was in the belly of the beast for about 30 years where you go from there and how you, how you put it together, how you solve the problems, how you organize the financing of it, and how you help doctors make appropriate decisions. Well, from a layman's point of view, from a patient who goes to the doctor from time to time, uh, all we know is that my insurance premiums keep going up, pharmacy products keep going up. It's, it seems like all we see is increased costs, and we see hospitals building more and more wings on their buildings and doing more and more. And, of course, the technology is incredible. Uh, and all the advances in medicine, we certainly want it all. But, boy, that just doesn't seem it's a touch of catch-22. We, so, we feel so frustrated. In fact, you say that Obamacare is not health care reform. It's increased insurance regulation. Uh, you know, written by the big pharmaceuticals and big insurance. So, I mean, it all seems so confusing. How can you help us, doctor? The first thing is to really understand that Obamacare is kind of a misnomer. It's really not Obamacare. It's one of those derogatory type of terms they use to scare people off. It really has very little to do with health care. They're just kind of getting the the nostril of the camel in the tent as far as affecting how medicine is practiced. The biggest issue was the uh, regulations that were imposed on insurance companies, and uh, that was an attempt to to control costs. But Obamacare, if we can use that term so it kind of sums it up, really is a very tiny baby step in the right direction. And where it went wrong was uh, they failed to really push for a public option at the beginning of this political process. The public option would have actually introduced real competition into the system. If the for-profit insurance companies had to compete against the Medicare option, 
And, of course, people know Medicare. Straight Medicare costs about 3% to administer, and big insurance companies are somewhere between 20 and 30% to administer. You could immediately cut out 10 or 15% of the administrative costs. So the private for-profit insurance carriers would have to compete against a, a very efficient claims processing operation. And, of course, in order to counter that, a lot of the politicians talk about how inefficient the post office is, how inefficient Medicare is, etc. Obamacare missed the boat because early on they just didn't push for the public option, which would have meant we'd have competition in the marketplace. So we do not have competition in the marketplace because the public option was uh, missed early on in the political process. It's it's difficult to understand how you could reduce from 10, 20, 30% all the way down to 5% just by going through Medicare. I mean, you still have to pay administration costs. Why would it be so much lower? Well, essentially, you don't see ads for straight Medicare. So there's no advertising budget. Medicare does not do these uh, pre-existing conditions. They don't exclude people because they're sick. They take on everybody because Medicare is essentially a self-insured um, product. In other words, they say they're going to insure people that are over 65. Once you qualify at 65, there's no screening procedure. So the people that are in insurance companies that do all that evaluation of pre-existing conditions and refusal of care and denial of of uh, whatever simply aren't there. So the administrative cost of that large section of uh, administration goes away. Uh, Medicare does not have a extremely large, well-paid sales force with a lot of uh, advertising and glossy stuff. I mean, I, I'm on Medicare. I go online and I select my Medicare product, and uh, it's all over. I don't, I don't have um, excessive amounts of advertising coming my way from Medicare itself. Now there are private companies that administer the Medicare product, and they have uh, extra services involved. And of course, I like a few of those extra things that are uh, offered by those Medicare. Uh, products. So I have one of the Medicare uh, products that are offered as part of the Advantage plan. Again, being a ex-HMO medical director, I understand all those products, and I just pick one of the best ones. Now, of course, we are all concerned about quality. Uh, we see uh, doctors who we often put up on pedestals. Uh, we uh, are frustrated they get paid so much. At the same time, though, we want the best. It's a real uh, <laughs> it's a real maze of feelings that we have as patients. But how do we get the best care and lower the cost of this care? Well, it's difficult to do with our present system. Uh, first, we have to understand what quality is all about. And essentially, quality is the uh, delivery of uh, health care that uh, is medically necessary. In other words, stuff that works. What you want to do is you want to get stuff that works. What we should be paying for is paying for stuff that works. 
in a free society, you can get all kinds of stuff. You can get any kind of medical care you want, anything that the physician is empowered through licensure in the state to deliver, you can get. You can get plastic surgery. Much of it is not paid for because it's elective and it's not medically necessary. So that's kind of the concept of part of the, the cost-saving piece is to pay for what's medically necessary. Now, in order to make that determination, you have to have people that really understand the science of medicine and make the policy determinations that say, we're going to pay for this stuff and we're not going to pay for that stuff. And those determinations have to be made based on science, not on politics and not on special interest groups and uh, the pharmacy people that want to sell drugs at high prices and all that sort of thing. The layperson has a lot of difficulty determining what quality is because they're relying on their physician. The physician has to believe that they know what they're doing. Otherwise, for most most doctors, most of us, It'd be very difficult to sleep at night if you really understood the air rate that is being produced by most doctors. And they can't see it because they're right in the middle of doing it, and they're in the middle of uh, the, the philosophical view that a lot of most of what they do is appropriate. When you back off from that and you you get a higher view of what's actually happening in medicine and when they do the studies, about 40% is documented as inappropriate, ineffective, harmful, wasteful, whatever. The layperson really can't make that determination. Most laypeople don't understand enough about medicine, medical science, and how these determinations are made to understand whether the doctor is offering a service that is uh, appropriate, effective, safe, you know, efficient, reasonable cost. There's no way of judging that. So uh, patient uh, advocacy people that talk about competition being just give the money to the patients and let them bargain with their doctors, it's actually going to go in the wrong direction. So part of the problem is the physician's understanding of what's happening out there, and part of the problem is the patient's inability to really make solid quality decisions. Who helps the uh, patient then? Who helps the patient? Uh, Is it government? I mean, I don't want government that doesn't seem to know much about anything. I want somebody in the medical field helping me. Well, we're really not talking about taking the power out of the hands of the physician. What I'm talking about is providing the physician with the tools that are necessary to be able to practice quality health care, quality medically necessary health care. Right now, physicians do not have those tools. And the reality is that the memory-based system for doctors using their memories to make decisions is kind of like draw, shoot, aim. It's like um, trying to remember uh, enough about the uh, drugs you're prescribing to know all the interactions when you're actually writing for the drugs. And most physicians, in fact, the human mind is not capable of doing that. So the concept is how do you get tools into the hands of the doctors that they can use when they interact with their patients to make proper decisions with the input of their patient in real time as they see those patients? How do we upgrade the decision-making process of the physician working with the patient to try to achieve the best outcome? So we need new computer models, new software to help us? 
Well, that's one of the central issues that has to be developed. Now, there are uh, these tools being developed. In fact, the uh, Veterans Administration has some of the more advanced uh, electronic medical records, and they are putting in decision support tools. In other words, intelligent uh, medical decision support. It's important to understand that support. That's not something telling doctors what they must do. It it provides the doctors with warnings when something's being done that is totally against medical science, and it also says, well, here's the, here's the top thing that will, will probably help. Here's the next thing that may work uh, and, and will, may work as well. Then it becomes the doctor's responsibility with the patient's input to make a proper determination using up-to-date, state-of-the-art information presented at the time when they're actually seeing the patient. So that is the piece that really saves the money. And people say doctors get paid too much. Doctors actually don't get paid too much. They're, they're really kind of in, the, in a slot, depending on their training and expertise, where their, their compensation, their personal compensation, is not a big issue. What is a big issue is the fact that physicians order about twice as much stuff as is necessary. Wow, right. So I did a little uh, spreadsheet on the number of doctors in this country and the amount of money spent on uh, total health care in this country. I came up with a figure for $3 million for each and every physician in the country. In other words, each doctor on average spends $3 million a year. Wow. Now, they take home 100000 150 right. Maybe if you're a neurosurgeon, uh, you, you might make 400000 a year. I happen to think neurosurgeons, a good one, <laughs> is probably worth 400000 sure. a year. Sure. No. I think our primary care docs are worth more than the hundred or hundred and a half they get. And, in fact, if the tools are in the hands of the physicians to make proper decisions up front, there would be more power in the hands of the primary care docs to make appropriate decisions. And the whole, the whole thrust of this is to decrease the amount of unnecessary services that are being provided to people by providing docs with the capability of working with state-of-the-art medical decision-making tools. And that's really kind of the summary. I mean, if you can... If you can help physicians make appropriate decisions that eliminate, uh, let's say, 30%, let's just, see, I believe it's about 50% of stuff that's not appropriate. There have been documented uh, studies done by Dartmouth, the Dartmouth Atlas, that say it's 40%. That's a lot of money. I mean, we're talking $2.5 trillion a year in healthcare. So if you could cut about a third of, let's say we cut out 600 or $700 billion per year out just by giving docs the appropriate tools to make quality health care decisions. Sure. We can save the American economy. Well, that makes sense. Part of our problem is the cost of health care, the cost of labor. Right. The cost of labor is out of sight partially because of the cost of benefits. And our and our expectations as patients, too. And, uh, boy, that's a, that's a tough... Uh, decision to make where you uh, keep applying health care or medical procedures and where you stop. Uh, that's a tough one. So uh, we're not going to solve that in this interview. <laughs> we don't have any more time, doctor. We really appreciate you being with us. Uh, a great discussion and uh, sounds like 
you really have zeroed in on some uh, appropriate and much-needed solutions. The title of the book, Discovering the Cause and the Cure for America's Healthcare Crisis, a Physician's Memoir, and the author is Dr. Roger H. Struby. And Dr. Struby, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can uh, sign on to Amazon and order it through Amazon by searching for the title or my name. Uh, I have a website uh, that will direct you to various places. website is rogerhstrubymd.com. And uh, just do a Google search and you will find lots of sightings for the book. And Struby is spelled S-T-R-U-B-E. Thanks so much for being with us, Doctor. Thanks for this interview on iUniverse Radio. And thank you very much for giving me the interview. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism. How America is threatened by excessive government, multiculturalism, political correctness, entitlement, and the failures of both political parties. And the author... Charles Gross, and Charles joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Charles. Hello. Good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Well, I want to read a couple of things that you have written to set the stage. Uh, the title really uh, says it all in many ways, but let me just add a little bit more. You say, my book examines what is wrong with the direction of policy in this country, 
how that it is caused by the influence of progressive liberals along with the lack of integrity by politicians of both parties and what we can do to reverse it. You say this book is written by a regular citizen, one with an above-average understanding of the workings of the government and the threats from the left, as well as from those who would destroy the American culture. And, of course, you're going to talk somewhat about this religion called Islam as well. Uh, Charles, why'd you do this? Uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are frustrated and some people angry and a lot of people are getting more involved in the Tea Party movement and other things, but why publish the book? Well, Steve, I I have to say it, it's sort of an accumulation of, uh, well, points of despair in looking at the direction the country is going in. Uh, it is sort of a, a lifetime event for me. You know, I became concerned, particularly, uh, you know, in the in the Bush years, the George Bush years, as the Republicans gained control, you know, of, of both sides of, of the Congress and the presidency, and yet they failed to rein in excessive spending. They failed to, uh, you know, um, produce good policy about the environment, about energy, and so forth. And basically, what I've seen is a caving in to the more aggressive um, wishes of the far left. And so then, when the elections of 2008 gave control of most of the government to um, a radically high-spending, sort of, uh, you know, progressive, liberal, almost socialist strategy, um, it it was more than I could take. So I had to basically speak out, say what I wanted to say, and and, uh, hope to spread the word hope to maybe inspire uh, a lot of people who believe similarly to me uh, who are somewhat passive and frustrated and don't know what to do with their uh, their frustration and their fear over you know the direction of the country so that's basically my motivation I, I do want to uh, more than anything I would like to sort of prod or spur people into thinking and more action in terms of monitoring their politicians, um, voting for their own best interest, and so forth. Why do you think, as you make a case for uh, some of these things we'll talk about, you say that liberals consistently say one thing and do another. Why is why is that? <clears throat> well, it's it's um, it's interesting. Um, liberal politicians, for example, like to talk the talk of, uh, um, you know, well, they like to act as though they care about the environment, they care about minorities, they care about this and that. And yet, in reality, they don't really exhibit that behavior nearly as much as they would like to have everyone believe. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, liberals like to paint conservatives as, as racist, uh, as sexists, you know, as homophobes, as a lot of things, because liberals need to play these cards in order to keep the fires stoked, the fires of of 
of distrust and divisiveness that helps keep them elected. See, what liberals are able to do is is divide people into different camps, you know, African-American, Muslim-American, Asian-American, whatever-American, hyphenated, and then promote the notion that these groups are victims. And, of course, the villains being the conservatives on the right, uh, the so-called wealthy, the the people that work and have things. Um, So my observation is the people that care the most about the environment, for example, or that rather that do the most for the environment, are more likely to be conservatives. I think the people who are less likely to dwell on the differences among us who believe in an American culture and not multiculturalism, I believe those people that believe in in the one American culture are conservatives, not liberals. Liberals like to keep everybody in their own little camp so they can keep them all fired up and mad all the time and feel like victims. Well, there's a real debate from uh, the left and the right about the Virtues of big government. Uh, So many people uh, advocate that big government solves problems. And, of course, the Tea Party uh, activists and others on the right are are against that. Uh, Tell us about your view of big government. Well, this nation was founded, first of all, on the idea that the federal government would have a limited role uh, in governing the lives of people, and we were founded on the notion of individual liberty uh, and individual um, self-reliance. There there is a notion among those on the left, and that includes a whole array of different philosophies from socialism to, you know, Marxism to communism to progressive liberalism and so forth, that People are, if left to take care of themselves, people are too selfish and too, you know, self-centered to care for their fellow man. And, and, and so their belief is that it is the role of the government to provide for everything. We hear the terms, you know, cradle to grave or womb to tomb, government um, uh, programs, and th- that is what those on the left tend to, if not believe, at least support um, the notion that the government can do it better for you. Now, what we see historically is it doesn't work. Um, as governments take over more and more uh, of the daily you know, functioning of the people, um, you know, before you know it, the, the fewer people are working to provide for more and more people, and that's where we're headed. We're, we have less than half the country um, paying paying income taxes, or, or way less than half the country taking less from the government than what they give. So um, as that grows, it's just obvious that as more and more people uh, join the ranks of, on the entitlement and in, in the entitlement programs, and fewer and fewer people um, are left to pay for it. That cannot, it's not sustainable. It's not, as government grows, the cost grows, and the number of people um, required, or the number of people that are supporting it shrinks. 
on another aspect from the liberal side is the notion that the wealthy uh, the wealthy don't pay enough you know the, the the greedy wealthy don't pay enough to help support those in need well that's just you know there's such a such a farce um, you know we already tax our corporations at the higher rate almost double the average around the world uh, you know we 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 take away a third of uh, better than a third of what you know so-called wealthy uh, people make and the the majority of the so-called wealthy the people on the that the uh, the those on the left call wealthy are not really wealthy um, you know, to the average guy, you know, makes 50, 60, 40, whatever, thousand a year, 30, 20, nothing. Um, you know, the, the notion that somebody that might make two or three hundred grand a year is, is rich is extremely misleading. Um, <clears throat> you have all these small businessmen who, who may take in and may earn a quarter of a million, half a million, whatever. Um, but what they're doing is, with their money generally, is they're buying a decent house, a decent car, putting food on the table for their family, and then reinvesting much of what they made back into their business, which creates jobs, uh, creates goods, and so forth. So this, this wealthy, the notion of taxing the wealthy is, it, it, just, it just doesn't work. And furthermore, if you talk about the super wealthy, let's say people that make seven figures or better a year, a million or more a year. There just aren't that many of them. So there's no way that you can raise income taxes on only the highest uh, earners and have much of an impact at all. Uh, you must raise taxes on all levels of income. You must raise taxes on the middle class if you want to really in increase revenue. And, of course, the increase in revenue is short-term because the... Uh, negative effect on the economy of raising taxes ultimately leads to fewer taxes collected. That's been proved time and again. And Steve, I have a lot in my book, you know, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism, a great example of uh, about policy. Um, John Kennedy was president in the early 60s and had a a, a sizable majority in both the House and Senate of Democrats. When the the country uh, the economy was a little sluggish um, when he took over, and one of the things that he did was he proposed and Congress passed a reduction in taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Now this is a Democrat, a completely Democrat Congress and president that realized that by doing so they could stimulate growth in the economy, stimulate business growth, and it worked. And so we had a nice little upsurge in prosperity caused by that. Now, you think of the liberal left of today, the Democrat Party of today. Can you imagine a proposal coming from them such as that which came from Kennedy and his Democrat Congress? It won't happen. So it's a great example of how the left has moved. Uh, they're no longer... Uh, they're no longer as influenced by the moderate or conservative Democrats. Um, they, they're taken over by the far left who only wants to scream about taxing the wealthy. And look at Obama's speech the other day when he said he railed on and on about corporate the tax break for corporate jets, for private jets. And he, he suggested that uh, if we don't 
take away that tax break that we might not be able to fund uh, meat inspection by the, uh, you know, FD, Federal Drug Administration, Food and Drug Administration, or we might have to cut out college loans, or we might have to cut out services for elderly. And, and this is totally, a total, uh, just avoiding the facts. Uh, the facts are that the corporate jet tax break was part of Obama's stimulus package that was passed in February of 2009. Did he mention that? No. And another part is that it's estimated that corporate tax uh, break is about $3 billion over 10 years, over the next 10 years, whereas um, these programs that Obama suggests we'd have to do without if we don't drop that corporate tax, that 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 tax break for corporate jets, those other programs are in the hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years. In other words, what he's talking about is not even a whole drop in the bucket, but it's a tactic. It's a tactic to uh, of the, the, the position of the liberal left, which is class warfare. Uh, that's what Obama and many of the far left do. They, as I mentioned before, keep the fire stoked of animosity and feeling like a victim through class warfare. It is always to them, you know, the poor, uh, downtrodden proletariat against the rich people, the evil, greedy, wealthy people. Um, we have so, about we have about a minute left, and I want you to address how Islam represents a threat to Western culture, and we don't have a whole lot of time. Okay, um, you know, granted that there are uh, you know many, perhaps a majority of people who practice uh, Islam uh, want to live in peace. Granted, however, there are a billion and a half. Uh, Muslims around the world, and even a small minority of them uh, that want to practice the more fundamental uh, Islam that is uh, outlined in the Quran. Uh, it's those people practice a religion of violence and hatred. Uh, no other major religion in the world condones murder and violence anymore as a means to advance its agenda, uh, and Islam does. Let's. No one should fail to understand that Islam teaches the subjugation, conversion, or annihilation of non-believers. And again, it's the only major religion that does that. It is a threat. They intend to kill us. They intend to subjugate us. They intend global domination. And that is not... Uh, well, it's certainly not what um, what we want, I don't think. The title of the book, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism, How America is Threatened by Excessive Government, Multiculturalism, Political Correctness, Entitlement, and the Failures of Both Political Parties. The author is Charles Gross. Charles, tell us how to get your book. Well, I do have an author website. That would be www.charlesgrossbooks.com. Uh, I'm also available out there. If you uh, put in any search engine uh, the title of the book, you'll find me on Amazon, Books a Million, BarnesandNoble.com, and other digital channels as well. So it is available in a hard copy, a soft copy, and in, in digital versions. Um, so 
Uh, now, if you Google my name, you're going to come up with about a hundred Charles Grosses who happen to be authors, uh, surprisingly. But um, if you um, uh, if you Google the danger of progressive liberalism, or not Google or any other search engine, excuse me, I don't mean to be partial to Google, um, you'll find me. Well, thank you, Charles. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.